Welcome to the Siski Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this is the last chapter in the first section of 1 Corinthians. So uh, as we have made our way through this letter, uh, you know that Paul has written to the, the Corinthian church. We've discussed that this is a letter of correction, that Paul is writing this letter to a church that he planted to bring correction into their life. And they had all sorts of things upside down, all sorts of things wrong, all sorts of things sideways. And one of those things that Paul addresses is their opposition and criticism and the way they compared themselves to each other, their division. Chapters 1 through 4 really deal with the issue of division in the Corinthian church. And this division took its form in sectarianism. So the church in Corinth was divided up into all these different sects, all these different groups with different leaders. There were those who were fanboys of Paul's. They said, man, Paul is our guy. He's this intellectual theologian. He planted the church, and we are going to follow after Paul. He's our leader. But then there was another group, and they had pledged their devotion to Apollos. Apollos was a Bible teacher who was very charismatic, who many Bible theologians believe that he really moved in the giftings of the Spirit. And so there were those that said, man, you know, I, I, I can appreciate Paul and what they're doing over there, but my flavor really is more Apollos. And so I am pledging my allegiance to him. And then there were those who said, man, I'm with Peter. Peter's my guy, the burly fisherman. He was of the OG. He was one of Jesus' original disciples. And they said, man, I just get Pete. He's a man's man. And so we are going to join Peter's church. And then there was another group in Corinth that were the Jesus-only group. And you say, well, all right, that sounds good. But they were only Jesus to a fault, if that can even be said, in that they were exclusive and that they were uh, not willing to participate in any of the rest of the church. And they kind of walked around with their noses in the air, kind of thinking they were better than everybody else. And so there was this division in the church of Corinth. And it wasn't just a normal division, right? Again, they weren't just agreeing to disagree about baptism or eschatology or any of these other things. This division, that Greek word for division, means to rend and tear apart. And so as Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church, he is literally begging them not to to tear the church apart, to quit tearing each other apart. They were not just divided, but they were opposed to each other comparing each other to to the other groups that there were and claiming superiority. you got to remember that the the cultural norm there in Corinth was one of great materialism. And they were working their way up the ladder, uh, you know, secularly before they came to know Jesus and had crept into the church. Everybody wanted to be the best. And so now Paul writes this letter and says, hey, you guys, quit tearing each other apart. And where was this division rooted? What was it rooted in? And we talked about this last Sunday, I believe. It was rooted in their spiritual immaturity. Their spiritual immaturity. Although they should have been grown in Christ, although they should have been walking in the things of the Lord, they were stuck in square one. They were just little babies in the Lord still. And so we talked last week about 
the importance of desiring spiritual maturity, how we grow in the Lord. And really, we talked also about the dangers of uh, spiritual immaturity and, and why and how to avoid that. But a huge part of growing in the Lord, a huge part of maturing in the Lord is taking on the characteristics of the Lord, right? As Christians, we are little Christs. We are to imitate Christ. We are to, to be more and more like him as we grow in him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that we are being transformed into his likeness. That is the goal, that we are to be more and more like Jesus. How do we do that? Well, I love the Old Testament origin story of King David. King David is one of my, my favorite Bible characters. But King David was overlooked. King David was underestimated. King David was an underdog. But he was a man of great integrity and honor. King David was a musician. And he was uh, a warrior. But he was also a fugitive. David was on the run for his life and although he was the rightful king, his predecessor, King Saul, who was a very prideful, uh, very stubborn, very arrogant, very jealous man, would really stop at nothing to kill David. So although David was the rightful king, and he was running for his life for 15 years, King David ran from Saul, living in the wilderness, hiding in the rocks, living in caves, and all the while, he was just trusting the Lord, trusting the Lord, trusting the Lord. But it was during that time in King David's life that there was a group of men who pledged their allegiance to David. And 1 Samuel 22, in verse 2, it describes these guys. It says, And everyone who was distressed, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered themselves to David, so he became captain over them. Not really the cream of the crop. <laughs> you know, those who are discontent, in debt, and uh, discontented. I mean, really, it sounds more like a, a prison yard than it does the king's army. But these are the men that gathered themselves to David. But here's the thing about these guys. They would go on to become elites. They would be... Uh, go on to become David's mighty men. They would go on to become the bravest and the most loyal. They would go on to become these valiant men. Uh, Joshua Beshebeth, he's a man who killed 800 guys with a spear by himself. Uh, Eleazar, he was uh, a warrior who, when everybody else turned and ran away, he held fast and he fought the battle so long and so hard that he could not even let go of his sword. There was Abishai. He killed 300 men single-handedly. There was Benaiah, probably my favorite of David's mighty men. He killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Like, you could have just stopped with killed a lion, but he killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian warrior by himself, two lion-like men. These men were elite. They were the top dogs. How did they go from being just a bunch of ragtag nobodies to the king's mighty men? How did they go from being distressed and in debt and discontent to being brave and loyal and, and valiant? They spent time with their king. They spent time with their king. And as they spent time with their king, they became more like their king. 
And that's the secret for us too. See, why did the Lord choose us? He didn't choose us because we were the bravest or the best or the mightiest. The truth is we are just like David's mighty men. We're a bunch of ragtag nobodies. But as we spend time with our king, the king of kings, the greater than David, our king Jesus, we become more and more like Jesus. And I love that. And God has all sorts of attributes. He's working all sorts of things into us that we ought to be those who love, that we ought to be those who are filled with grace and mercy. But one of God's greatest attributes is his faithfulness. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, how grateful we are for God's faithfulness towards us. He's faithful, that we can count on him, that we can count on the Lord to hear us, to be near to us, to help us, to heal us, and to see us through. What a wonderful reality that is that no matter where we are, man, we can really count on the Lord when we cry out to him. Today, however, we're not going to talk about the Lord's faithfulness as we already have. We're going to talk about our faithfulness to the Lord. What does it mean for us to be faithful as we grow in Christ? What does it mean for us to be faithful to the Lord? And so, Let's just dive into our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in servants uh, that one be found faithful. So Paul here opens up chapter 4 by saying, Hey, consider us as servants Consider us as stewards. This is how I want you, Corinthian church, to view me, Paul says. But Paul just wasn't referring to himself. He says, this is how I want you to see us. Consider us. Who is the us that Paul is talking about? Well, he's talking about himself. He's talking about Apollos. He's talking about Peter. Later on in verse 9, we'll see that he's talking about the apostles. Really, those who were the leaders of the early church Paul is saying, hey, consider us, the leaders of the early church, the apostles, consider us as servants and as stewards. But here's the thing about the word apostle. The word apostle absolutely 100% applies to Paul and the the 12 disciples and, and to Peter, who was a part of that group. And they have a very special place in church history. Uh, there was a, a, a unique authority given to the apostles as the leaders of the early church. <clears throat> but we are all apostles, not in the sense that we've been given the same authority, but in the sense that we have been sent out. That's exactly what apostle means. Apostle means sent with a message, right? The, the leaders of the early church were sent out with the message of the gospel. But haven't we as Christians been sent out with that same message? We have been. And we've talked about this over the last several weeks that we are all ministers of the gospel in one sense because we're Christians. We have all been called, according to Matthew 28, according to Acts chapter 1. We uh, are all able ministers, according to 2 Corinthians 3.6. We have all been ordained that we might bear fruit, according to John 15. And so I want us to understand that the immediate context of this scripture is applied to Paul and the apostles. But there is a very real application for us today practically as we apply this to our lives that we ought to be those who uh, consider ourselves just like Paul and the apostle to be servants 
and to be stewards uh, as we too have been called to deliver the good news of the gospel. That should be our heart. And so what does it mean? Paul says, hey, consider us to be servants of Christ. If you are reading the new uh, King James, it'll say servant. If you're reading the King Jimmy, the original, the OG, it'll probably say, I think it says uh, ministers of Christ and not servants of Christ. It's the same word in the Greek. It doesn't matter uh, what translation you are reading. Uh, in the Greek, that word uh, for uh, servant of Christ is huperetes. Uh, hupo means under and uretes means rower. So when Paul says, consider us or call us, think of us as servants of Christ, he's saying, think of us as under rowers. You say, great, that clears things up. <laughs> what is an under rower? It's not a term that we use, right? An under rower is exactly what it sounds like. It's somebody who rowed from under. Back in the day, if you wanted to get a ship across the ocean, there was no diesel. There were no nuclear-powered, you know, aircraft carriers. There was no gasoline outboard engines. If you wanted to get a boat from point A to point B, you had a couple options. It was either wind or manual labor. And these boats, in the ancient days, they ran on manual labor. They really ran on slave labor. And there was these great ships called long ships, great Roman ships. And you guys can think in your mind's eye, picture those ships that you've seen, that down the side of the hull, there's that big row of oars sticking out, like 50, 100 oars. On the other end of those oars were slaves. They were guys who rowed. They were under rowers. And here's the thing with an under rower. Under rowers, man, they really they had a pretty gnarly job. So when Paul says, consider us under rowers, it's not really a term of endearment or a term of authority. We wouldn't, we wouldn't strive to be called under rowers. The under rowers were down there in the darkest, lowest, stinkiest part of the ship. Now imagine, you know, a hundred dudes who haven't showered in a week doing manual labor no fresh air to be spoken of, no bathroom breaks, like you get the idea, I don't need to go on. It was a gnarly place to be. And Paul says, call us under rowers. See, they would be down there, the under rowers, they were nobodies. They didn't chart the course. They simply followed the orders of the master. They rowed to the beat of his drum. They were completely subject to his authority and they rowed together with each other. And so Paul says, consider us under rowers. He's saying, man, consider me the lowest. Consider me the guy who's willing to go anywhere and, and, and do anything in service to the Lord. Consider me the guy who's not charting my own course, but who is looking to the captain of my salvation, Jesus, and I'm following my life as being lived out to the, the, to the cadence of the drum that he's beating. Consider me one who's working together with fellow servants. Could you imagine I mean, many of you probably have been in a, a, like a canoe with somebody else. Have you ever been in that situation where multiple people have oars? If you're not working together, it is like, it's a joke. You just go around in a circle or you end up in the drink. Paul says, not only am I following the Lord, but we're following the Lord together. We're willing to go anywhere. And so as we consider Paul, as he says, man, think of me as an under rower. Like, what is our stance? What is our position? Are we willing to take that position in the kingdom of God to say, consider me an under, consider me a servant. Consider me a nobody. Willing to go anywhere for the Lord, to the darkest, to the deepest. 
I'll go, Lord. Send me. So often in our modern church age, we say, oh, Lord, thank you. Send me anywhere. I'll go anywhere for you, just so long as it's comfortable and convenient. I'll go to coffee, Lord. I'll be a missionary. You want me to go to Hawaii? I'm there. That's Paul's heart. And that should be our heart too. But, but not just an under rower, but also a steward. Paul says, consider uh, us stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. So what is a, a steward? The Greek word there for steward is oikonomos. Uh, oikos means house and nomos means law. So uh, this idea of a steward, oikonomos, is uh, the law of the house. So it means the law of the house. And so a, a steward would be one who was in charge of the master's finances, the, the master's uh, assets, the master's servants. The, the steward would still be a, a servant. They were still uh, owned by the master, but they were in charge. They were the ones who had access to the money to make sure that the bills were paid, to make sure that there was food on the table, to make sure that things were, were, were getting done. And it was a very common thing in Paul's day, in Jesus' day, even in the Old Testament, that if you were wealthy, you would have stewards to look after your stuff while you were away on trips. And in fact, there's many stories in the New Testament that kind of speak of this. In Matthew, Jesus tells the, the, the parable of the talents, where the master of the house leaves with his stewards five talents and two talents and then one talent with the other. And when he comes home, he wants a report. How did they do? Uh, there's the parable of the uh, unrighteous steward there in Luke 16, where the master came home and he wanted an account. What happened? How are things going to his steward? And his steward was a bad steward. Man, bills weren't paid. Things weren't done. And so last minute, he's rushing around. He's going to everybody who owed his master money and say, hey, you owe the master 100 bucks. We'll settle your debt for 50. It was a half-off sale for that guy. And then, of course, in the Old Testament, if we're going to talk about stewards, and we have a beautiful picture of what a steward looks like in the, the life of Joseph. You guys remember Joseph? His brothers betrayed him, threw him down into a pit. He was sold to the slave traders, and then the slave traders sold him to Potiphar. Potiphar was a powerful, wealthy man, and Joseph was the steward in Potiphar's house. He tended to all the needs of the household, and the Lord blessed Joseph in that. Man, he was so good. But then, unfortunately, Miss Potiphar put the moves on Joey, and he got thrown into the, into the cell there, and Potiphar was bummed out. He was bummed because he had lost such a good steward. And so the stewards were those who were put in charge of their master's belongings. There was an emphasis on responsibility. There was an emphasis on accountability. There was uh, an emphasis on delegated authority. And Paul here says, I'm a steward. Not just a servant willing to go anywhere and do anything for our king, for my king Jesus, but also a steward. I've been sent with the, the king's message. I've been sent with the king's good to delegate. What was, Paul, uh, what was delegated to Paul to distribute? It was the mysteries of God. That's what he says. He's a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, what are the mysteries of God? The mysteries of God are those things that were once hidden that are now revealed, right? The Old Testament stories, I talk about this all the time, how much I love the Old Testament because hidden within the Old Testament stories, 
the Old Testament songs, the Old Testament uh, celebrations and the rites and the rituals. Hidden within all of those things are these beautiful pictures of the reality of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us, foretelling, prophesying of the Messiah to come, that he would lay down his life to save humanity. And those are the mysteries. They're things that we know now. The mysteries of God are simply the truths of God's word that we are to distribute, that Paul was to distribute. And so if we are to apply that to ourselves like we are this morning, man, we are to be those who are willing to go wherever the Lord has called us to go, to do whatever the Lord has called us to do. And we go bearing the good news of the gospel. That is what has been delegated to us to distribute. And so Paul, as he says, man, we are, uh, consider us under rowers, uh, servants consider us stewards who've been entrusted with the mysteries of God. He says there's, there's one thing that is required of uh, a steward. And he says there at the end of verse two that that steward must be found faithful. Faithful. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Our faithfulness towards the Lord. Man, I'm so glad that the Lord is faithful to us, but are we faithful to the Lord? What is Faithfulness. Faithfulness, it means to be faithful. It means to be reliable. It means to be trustworthy. It means to be dependable, steadfast, and loyal. Matthew 5 says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say that you're going to be someplace, be there. When you said you were going to be there. If you say that you're going to do something, do the thing that you said you were going to do. Don't make commitments all loosey-goosey. Don't make commitments half-hearted. Uh, you know, don't be one who uh, is, is constantly breaking promises and backing out of commitments. This is something that plagues our culture today. Uh, we have lost the value of faithfulness. And people have no trouble backing out on all sorts of commitments, financially, or from families, or from jobs, or from spouses, it's a, it's a tragedy in our culture currently. There was a time when a man's word meant something. But now, if things get difficult, oh, I didn't think it was going to work out that way. I'm sorry, hey, I'm back now. I know I committed. But there was a time when that just wasn't the case. And to be faithful means that you keep your word, that you can be counted on. It means you can be counted on. And so what does that look like? What does faithfulness look like lived out for the Lord? And we can't talk about Faithfulness lived out for the Lord without talking about the father of faith, Abraham. Father Abraham. He had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so let's all get up. Let's do No, I'm just kidding. We won't. The first service wouldn't get up either and do that. So let's just, it's a kid's song for those of you who don't know. It's a really good one. You should learn it. But Abraham was one who was faithful to the Lord. He, he followed the Lord. He obeyed the Lord. He did what the Lord told him to do. Think about Abraham's story. He was there in the Ur of Chaldees. That was his stomping grounds. That's where he lived. And the Lord showed up and said, Abraham, pack up your stuff, leave your family behind, and follow me. All right, Lord, where are we going? I'll tell you when we get there. I'm sorry, what was that? You'll tell, I'm going to need a little more info, Lord. Like, can you tell me where we're going to go? What is our ETA? What are the stops along the way? He just said, no, come on, Abraham, let's go. He said, all right. I'm following you, Lord. Wherever you go, I'll go. And then as Abraham went, the Lord made him some promises. 
Abraham, you are going to be the father of a great nation. Your descendants are going to be like the stars in the heavens and the sands on the sea. One problem with that promise, Abraham was like 80 years old and so was his wife. But although it was impossible, although it didn't make sense, he said, all right, Lord, if you said it, I believe it. And it was counted to him for righteousness, the Bible says. And then when that promised son came, the Lord said, Abraham, I'm going to test you. I'm going to see if you really are willing to be faithful to me. I want you to take that son of promise up to Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice his life for me. And Abraham said, all right, let's go. And he took his son Isaac, and they marched up the hill. And you guys know that God stopped Abraham. It was just a test. But Abraham is that picture of faithfulness. Lord, I will go wherever you call me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Even if it doesn't make sense, even when I don't understand, I'm going to do it. The hall of faith is filled with stories of men and women who live faithful lives to the Lord. Noah and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Samson, David. Like We don't even have time to touch on all their stories this morning. But go back and read through them. It really is wonderful. that these, these people, they had a great faith in the Lord, and so they walked in faithfulness. And that's the thing. You can't just believe. It, it, there's a difference between having faith in the Lord and being faithful to the Lord. But they are inseparable. If you have faith in the Lord, man, you need to be faithful to the Lord. One fuels the other. And so what does it look like to be faithful to the Lord? Faithfulness to the Lord really, I believe, is is born out of love and honor and respect and reverence and humility for the Lord. It's born out of us remembering, first of all, what the Lord has done for us. And we remember God's faithfulness towards us that God snatched my life out of the miry clay and set it on the firm foundation of Jesus and gave me a a future and a hope and a purpose and a plan. To remember what the Lord did for me, it caused me to say, oh man, Lord, it is my reasonable service. You laid down your life for me to to, to live my life for you. Imagine that just in this world. If you were walking along and you crossed the street and and you stepped out in front of a bus and somebody came along and pushed you out of the way and that person was taken out in your place, you would have this sense of obligation and and duty to them. But for some reason with the Lord, we say, oh yeah, you know, grace, it's, it's great. I don't need to be faithful to the Lord. He died for my sins and I'm headed to heaven. But there's that part of remembering what God did for us that should cause a a, a deep reverence that is the beginning of faithfulness. It should cause us to live a committed life unto the Lord day by day that we would walk with the Lord, that we would be obedient to his word, that we would be devoted to studying his word. How can we be obedient to his word if we don't know what his word says? That's what the psalmist said in 119, and I've, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When we are truly faithful to the Lord, it shapes the way that we live. It changes the way that we live. And, you know, maybe you're here this morning and say, geez, Pastor Jeremy, that sounds a little legalistic and sounds a little rough. I don't know if I can be one who is always committed and always devoted and always steadfast and always faithful to the Lord. I just don't think that I have it in me. You're getting it. You don't. I'm here to tell you that you can't. You don't have it in you. So, all right, now I'm confused. So we're to be faithful, but we don't have it in us. How are we to walk this out? I'm glad you asked. 
We are to walk out this faithfulness through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, we are faithful. We have the ability to be faithful because God has been faithful. We have the ability to be faithful because God has been faithful. Man, the Bible speaks about God's faithfulness all through it. Uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, God gives us the examples of what it looks like to live a life that's faithful to him. But in chapter 12, God shows us how we're to do it, the one who enables us. Hebrews chapter 12 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of God. See, over and over again, we hear of God's faithfulness in the scriptures. In Deuteronomy, that he is faithful and he keeps his covenant for a thousand generations. In Psalm 33, that the, the Lord is true and he's faithful in all he does. Psalm 36, 5, that his mercies uh, endure forever, that his faithfulness, it reaches to the heavens. Again, it's God's faithfulness towards us that enables us to be faithful towards him because he was faithful unto death because he died in our place. And this whole thing, like we talked about on Sunday of salvation, right? It was God's plan from the very beginning. God had this plan of salvation, God the Father. It was Jesus, it was the Son who uh, accomplished our salvation on the cross, but it was the Holy Spirit who implemented it in our lives, and does day by day. You cannot live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. That is just, I don't know if you know that or not, but I'm telling you now, you cannot live out the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. If you endeavor to be God's man or God's woman and to be faithful and to walk in all that he has for you in your own efforts, you're going to be incredibly discouraged all the time because we just don't really have what it takes. See, Faithfulness is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, you guys, the fruit of the Spirit is not a coconut. The fruit of the Spirit, it's just not a coconut. If you want to be a coconut, you might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the Spirit. It's another kid's song. Because the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you want to learn scripture, find a song that has scripture in it. That's all I'm saying. But a fruit of the Spirit, it's faithfulness. That's how we walk in faithfulness. And here's the problem with being faithless. Right? We're called to walk in faithfulness by the power of the Holy Spirit. But when we are faithless Christians, when we do our own thing, when we are stubborn and prideful and rebellious, when we march to the beat of our own drum, Here's the thing. First of all, it diminishes our effectiveness as Christians. It ruins our witness. It robs us of our boldness. I remember when I was a young man and I was saved and the Lord was working in my life, but there was things that I was still holding on to. And I was still, you know, partying a little bit with my buddies. And there was times I remember throwing back, you know, brewskis with the bros and then wanting to talk to them about Jesus. And like, dude, come on, you're a total hypocrite. It just blew my witness. And there was things that I knew I was wrestling with where I was being unfaithful in my life. And so it kind of, I can't talk to somebody else about that because I'm, it, it diminishes our effectiveness. It ruins our witness and it robs us of our boldness. You guys remember Peter, the burly fisherman. He said, Jesus, I don't care. Where you go, I go. Even unto death, I'll follow you. I'll never deny you. Peter said that in his own strength. And what happened? Peter was confronted by a little girl around a campfire. 
aren't you one of Jesus's guys? That was my little girl, sorry. It sounded more like a smoker in their 90s, but... <clears throat> Peter was like, absolutely not. And Peter gets all defensive, and, and Peter denies the Lord three times. Peter ended up being faithless because Peter relied on Peter and not on the Lord. But not only does faithlessness diminish our effectiveness, it diminishes our capacity. I mentioned the parable of the, the stewards, the one who got five talents, two talents, and one talent. Well, the ones who had been faithful, the master, when he came back, he said this to them. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. See, there's this thing where if we want to be faithful over much, we have to start being faithful over the little things. Spurgeon he said, I am perfectly sure that if I had not been willing to preach to those small gatherings of people in obscure country places, I should never have had the privilege of preaching to thousands of men and women in large buildings all over the land. Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers ever. I mean, his work is still bearing fruit today. But he was faithful in the little things before God gave him bigger things. And so, and there's a danger in faithlessness. It diminishes our effectiveness and it diminishes our capacity. And so what's the answer? Because here's the truth. As Christians, we will find ourselves in seasons where we have been faithless, where we have blown it. Like Peter, where we have relied on our own strength and not on the Holy Spirit. And now what? Now what do we do? The answer to faithlessness is simply going before the Lord. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is our propitiation for our sins. And not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, when we simply go before the Lord and we say, Lord, I've blown it. Forgive me. He is willing to forgiveness because when we are faithless, he is still faithful. That's what it tells us in 2 Timothy 2.13. He can't deny himself. And so there's this spiritual law concerning restoration. And if you're here this morning and you feel that way, like, man, I've blown it. I've been faithless, but I want to be restored again unto the Lord. You go and you confess your sin. You ask the Lord for forgiveness. You repent. See, there are physical laws. If you climbed up onto the roof and you jumped off, you can say all day long, I don't believe in gravity, but you're going to hit the ground because it's a physical law. There's no way around it. Well, there is. You could use a parachute, but that's just another law. See, there is no way around. But just like there's physical laws, there's spiritual laws. The law of restoration. The law of restoration requires two things. It requires repentance and it requires forgiveness. When those two things are in play, repentance... And forgiveness, there can be restoration. But here's the problem, is that we confuse repentance with remorse. What is repentance? Repentance means to turn from and to turn to. To turn from sin and to turn towards God. See, oftentimes we confuse repentance, turning from sin, turning towards God, with remorse, where we feel bad about what we've done. It's good to feel bad when we've done wrong. But that's not the end game. And when we lie awake at night and say, oh man, what a bummer. I shouldn't have done that. I feel bad. That's great. 
But if it doesn't turn into repentance, turning from that sin towards the Lord, if, there, if it doesn't bear fruit, if it doesn't translate into action in your life, then it was, it's not valuable. It's repentance plus forgiveness. And we know that the Lord is always willing to forgive. That's true in our relationship with the Lord. Repentance, forgiveness, restoration. We've been restored unto the Lord. It's also true in our lives horizontally in these relationships. And that's important for us to understand because we've been called to forgive unconditionally, right? We forgive other people not because they deserve forgiveness. We forgive other people because we have been forgiven. What does it mean to forgive? It means to drop the debt you don't owe me anymore. I'm not holding it against you. The wrong that you committed against me, you're forgiven. Debt paid, forgotten. But here's where we make the mistake. Even in church, we say forgiveness equals restoration, and that's not true. We say, well, you have to forgive people, and then you have to allow them access back to your life. That's not the case. That can only happen if two things are in place, repentance and forgiveness. Then you can start the process of restoration. And so that's what we do, man. When we've been faithless, we go to the Lord, and we say, Lord, I'm repenting. I'm turning from that. I'm turning towards you. And where there's repentance and forgiveness, there is restoration. And you think about Peter's situation. Peter, man, he was so bummed out that he had failed the Lord. But he had a, a repentant heart. He had a, a broken heart, a broken heart and a contrite spirit, as David would say. And Jesus came to him and restored him. Remember? He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus again said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter was like, yes, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, Lord, I do love you. What's going on here? See, the Lord had Peter say, I love you three times because Peter had denied him three times. He brought restoration into Peter's life. And that's exactly what the Lord does into our life. He restores us when there's repentance. There's always forgiveness. And so I'll leave it with this this morning. It's kind of a challenge. A challenge for myself, a challenge for you guys as well to really think about how we show our faithfulness to the Lord. Are there things in our lives that are getting in the way of our faithfulness? What areas of our lives have we been stubborn? Have we not given over to the Lord? And my prayer for us is that as we bring those things before the Lord, which is honest in prayer, Lord, would you put your finger on those things that we would find ourselves walking in restoration, that as the Lord puts his finger on those areas where we've been off, where we've been faithless, that we would repent, that we would turn to him and, and walk in the forgiveness that he's given us. This whole thing of Christianity, it's not about us. We belong to the master. We are to be about his business, about his work, willing to go wherever he would call us to go, to live our lives according to the, the cadence that he sets for us, to allow him to chart the course to follow him unapologetically, that we would be good stewards with the things that he gives us, that we would be faithful and trustworthy about the master's business, but not in our own strength. Remember, in, in his strength. And again, when we've blown it, man, there is restoration available if we're willing to turn towards the Lord and ask for forgiveness. And again, my prayer for us is those who are growing in the Lord, that we would just be growing in the Lord, that we would be experiencing the wonder and the blessing and the fulfillment and the satisfaction of what it's like to know him more and more every day, that we wouldn't be stunted little baby Christians stuck at square one, but that we would be 
experiencing all that the Lord has for us. Good stewards, that we would be good servants. The Corinthian church, Paul's going to contrast them. The Corinthian church, they were just the opposite. They were not faithful, but they were faithless. They were full of pride. They were puffed up. They were the, the captains of their own ship. It was in great air. I pray that we would be a people who would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of your Lord. It's good for us. But remember, we can only be faithful because God has been faithful to us. Lean on him. Lean into him. And so, Lord, as we come to the table of communion this morning, Lord, we have a desire to belong to you, to be yours, holy, 100%, that we would be holding nothing back. But, Lord, we recognize that we can only be faithful to you because you've been faithful to us. And what a reminder we are about to hold in our hands. As we take the bread, we remember your faithfulness to the Father. As you laid down your own will, to walk in obedience to his plan. We remember your faithfulness to us, that your life was the price that was paid for our redemption, that we were bought not with silver or gold, but by your precious blood. And because you died on the cross in our place, Lord, we can experience great healing. We can experience great restoration. We can experience great freedom. Lord, as we take the, the cup, the juice, you said this is the new covenant. Lord, that our sins are washed away and forgiven, not because of our ability to stay within the lines or to, to walk this life out perfectly, but we are forgiven because you did. You lived the perfect life and you died in your place and your blood was shed. It washed away our sins. Though our sins were as scarlet, they've been made white as snow. And so as we come to the table, Lord, we have a desire to be faithful to you. We remember what it is you've done for us, which stirs in our heart that love and that loyalty. But Lord, we remember that we can't do it without you, and we thank you so much for the cross. We love you, Lord, and as we come, we remember. But as we come, I also pray that we would do the work that you've asked us to do, that we would do that self-examination, that we would that we would allow you to search our hearts and put your finger on those areas in our life that need to change. And that by your strength, Lord, we would do that and experience the blessing that comes along with it. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com.